Let's take our Bibles for our Bible study. Join me in Romans chapter 6, please. The book of Romans chapter 6. Those of you who do not have sermon notes from the bulletin, the ushers are moving around the auditorium, they will hand those to you, make them available, just raise your hand so you can follow along a little bit better. I was reading a story in a leadership magazine from years ago about a preacher whose name is James Riley. He was writing about a personal experience of his. He grew up in the Midwest area, and when he was just a couple years old, his father was taken away from the home because his father had committed crimes. And so he grew up in a home where they were impoverished, didn't have much, and his family was broken up. And he started getting into troubles. Right from that time when Dad left, when he was two, he started being a problem child. And when he was in the elementary years, he had uh, been kept, caught several times by the police for shoplifting. In his high school years, things got worse. And finally, he was taken out of his home and put into a juvenile retention place where they could, detention place, where they could deal with him. And so he was there for a period of time, but it didn't help him. Instead, he learned even more criminal activity. When he got out, one of the things he got involved with was drug dealing, stealing cars, and he got caught. He ended up going to prison, and while he was in prison in the second, third year, he, always, he went to one of, those, uh, one of those services that were being held by some folk from the outside coming and doing Bible studies, and he responded after he was sitting in there for a few weeks. He responded to the gospel and got born again. He finished out his tenure in prison. The first thing he did when he got out is he went, started studying so that he could become a minister of the gospel. He went to seminary, Bible college, got those things. And he was in ministry now in Texas for a period of time. And it just kind of was burdening his heart that he should try to reach out and find out from his father who he hadn't heard from since he was two years old. So he did all kinds of research and finding and finally tracked down his dad and they did get together. And they got together on a couple occasions, and one of those occasions is what he's writing about in this article that Leadership Magazine had. He's writing about how he and his dad were talking, and they had both been in prison. And they were comparing notes of some of that as he was sharing the gospel with his dad. His dad was talking about he too at times had gone to some of those preaching services. But on a side of that, his dad was telling him one time that while he was in prison, he was working as a welder for the government and even working in, in the prison where he was was at uh, doing some work, and sometimes they would take them to the prison that they were re- that they were building nearby. And in the conversation, they f- figured it out that Dad had actually been working in the same cell block in the new prison that was being built that the son had ended up being a prisoner in. And so they were just saying, "What's the? Imagine that I ended up in prison that my dad helped to build." You know, the same thing is true spiritually. When we read in the book of Romans what has happened to all of us, we are in a spiritual prison that our Father built. When we go back to the book of Romans, we read this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. That one man is who? Adam. That one man in sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all of us. He goes on, for that all have sinned. He makes that same comment where he talks, by the offense of one, judgment has come upon all men. We all face a spiritual bondage that was created by our great ancestor, Adam, when he disobeyed the Lord. That becomes a major theme of the book of Romans, especially the first part of the book. In the first part of the book that Paul is writing, he's talking about you and I and the situation that we face, and that is our bondage in sin. Do you remember how he talks about this? In Romans, we read in chapter 3, verse 10, where he makes that comment. He says, as it is written, there is how many righteous? Two. 
None righteous, no, not one. In verse 23, for how many have sinned? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He talks about the penalty of that sin. He Remember, we read this last week in Romans chapter 1 where he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Where in verse 32 it says at the end of chapter 1, who knowing the judgment of God, talking about the people who know, they would and they which commit such things are worthy of death. Then he goes on and says, and still they do the same things. He talks about that judgment. He talks about the penalty. He talks about how you and I are going to be judged no matter who we are. In chapter 2, he makes that comment, verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. Verse 6, who will render God, who will render according to every man, according to his deeds. Verse 11, for there is no respect of persons with God. He goes on in the book and he talks about how God having this, this decree that there's going to be judgment, God didn't leave us in the lurch. We go to chapter 5 and we read in verse 8, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. And so God didn't abandon people in this, in this prison of sin. Instead, God himself comes in the flesh as by one man sin entered into the world, so by one man righteousness comes. When Jesus becomes a human and enters into the human race, and Jesus Christ gives himself as a sacrifice to pay for the penalty of our sin. We read about that in verse, chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for us, the ungodly. Verse 8, for God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, that judgment. For if we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, not by baptism, not by good works, not by what we've done, but by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so it's very clear this gospel message is the theme of what Paul is talking about. And towards the end of chapter 5, he's talking about how God has been so gracious that God has given his son as our substitute. And he makes this comment in verse 20 of chapter 5. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound or we might see our sin through the law. But where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. And so he ends up with that theme of chapter 5 saying, this is absolutely amazing. Christ gave himself as a substitute. His grace is so, so profound that we have this knowledge that God, by his grace, will forgive anyone of any sins at any time when they call upon him. And so that's a tremendous truth that Paul is saying, this is wonderful, that Christ gave himself as our substitute. You remember, back in the Civil War area, that era of that time that people could hire somebody for $300 was the common wage. You could hire somebody when the draft came along that they could take your place. They could be your substitute. Well, Jesus Christ volunteered to be our substitute, to take our place on the battle line of dealing with sin, where Jesus Christ died on the cross when you and I should have suffered that punishment of separation from the Father. He took my sin, he took your sins, and he gave himself, and the Apostle says, and what's so amazing is that his forgiveness that he purchased is so great that he is willing to forgive anyone of any sin at any time. And so Paul's excited. But he knows that there's going to be some people sitting in the church that he's writing to in Rome who are going to have issue with that. 
And he says, okay, some of you are thinking this. In fact, just a couple of verses later, he quotes what some of them have been questioning and what they have done with that grace of God. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to think this way, the way some of you are thinking? Shall we continue to think that we can continue in sin because grace would abound? Since God is willing to forgive any sin at any time, then we might as well go out and sin some more, is what some of the people were thinking. Now, that question leads me to some interesting conclusions. That question that they ask reveals something that's very, very profound. It reveals to us that sin is still an issue for those who have been forgiven and become a child of God. For believers, we still battle with sin. Notice how he says, shall we say, shall we continue in sin? And Paul is saying this is an issue that all of us face. That we are still struggling with our old nature. It hasn't been taken away. It's been forgiven the penalty is, is gone, but we still deal with that problem of sin until we get to heaven. And so he makes it very clear that you and I need to be careful. We not, ta- not uh, take sin lightly, temptation lightly. He also reveals that even in a good church, where people are well grounded in the Word of God, which is the church he's writing to, he says there could still be some confusion about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of forgiveness, an understanding of what grace means and how we live. And so we ought to be very, very, very careful that we accurately and correctly understand God's forgiveness, God's grace, how that affects and how we should respond to that. Because false errors, erroneous teaching can easily creep in like it was in this church. This church, some people were coming to a conclusion that since God is willing to forgive and grace abounds, then that means we can go and do whatever we want. The, the-, the teaching is called antinomianism. It comes from that idea from the words anti-against rules or laws. It's that idea we're against any kind of rules, any regulations, any kind of restrictions. The teaching basically goes this way. Since God graciously forgives us of our sins... The more we sin, the more grace we get. And therefore, we should go out and get more involved with evil, then we can come and get more grace. And so, those of you who are more evil, you are closer to God because he gives you more grace. The teaching basically is this idea. Jesus plus grace means we can live any old way we please. We can go and do any sin. We can stay in any sin. We can just go out and, in fact, His grace encourages us to sin. Antinomianism. One of, one of the profound proponents of this from, from a weird point of history is Gregory, or we know him better as Rasputin. He was involved in Russia during that time period. He's a man who is supposedly a holy man as a young man. He went off into Greece, got involved with some cult, came back two years later, and he supposedly had these spiritual powers. Spiritual powers and message that he could help out the Russians and he could heal people. And so they, they heard about it. The Tsar and his wife, which you remember this from history, their youngest, their only son, their youngest child, had a problem with hemophilia. And so that bleeding disease was, you know, very, very serious, and it threatened the young potential czar's life. 
And so they heard about Rasputin and his healing power, so they invited him in, and he was able to calm the boy down, and he helped him through some of his bouts when there was some inner bleeding. And so as a result of that, he became a very close confidant and, and involved with the Tsar's family. And ironically, about this time in history, was as close to that time when all of a sudden Europe starts having World War One and there's problems, and the Tsar leaves the uh, St. Petersburg, and he leaves the government in control of his wife and her friend Rasputin. Rasputin was of the mindset that I need to sin, 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 and then God will give me more wisdom. And so he was a vile, decadent individual. In fact, his name that he got means debauchery or immorality. That's, he was known as the essence of evil. And his whole idea came from this teaching that he read in some church fathers that it's okay to go out and sin because God will give you more grace and bless you more. So the more you sin, the greater it is. His evil has had a profound effect upon the world. Because of his decadence, a lot of the people in St. Petersburg were upset with him. And that led to a lot of their upsetness with the Tsar and his wife, which led to the open rebellions that started there in St. Petersburg, which led to the overthrow of the Tsar five days after he came back from the battlefield. And then within months, he and his wife are shot, and it brings into the Bolshevik Revolution a lot of it because of Rasputin's evil and what he had done that tore down confidence in the system that was in place. And you all know then what happened historically after that. Out of that whole movement came the movement of the communists. And out of communism came an anti-God movement that took over a lot of portions of the world that has been there in place for decades. This guy's evil had a profound effect. And so you and I should say, now let's stop. Let's make sure that we understand. Antinomianism is not biblical. We get accused of it all the time. We get accused of this frequently. We teach what the Bible teaches, that if you're saved, you are secure. Once saved, always saved. Some accuse us of saying, because we say once saved, always saved, we're telling people they can go out and sin and do whatever they want. That's just not true. We've never taught that. We've never said that. We taught that once we're saved, we should be holy as, as he is holy, that we're expected but antinomianists say, well, no, we don't have to be. We can just go. There are no rules. Let's just go out and do what we want. Paul's response to that is this. God forbid. God forbid. May it never be. He's very adamant. He's very intense where he says, this is not what we're teaching. This is not what we're saying. Shall we continue in sin because grace is abounding? He just mentioned how grace abounds in chapter 5, verse 20. He isn't saying, therefore, go out and sin some more. God forbid that you would think we would say that. And then what he does is he goes on and he answers and explains why we should not continue in sin. Read with me where it says in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, we were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. 
For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. In that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, just like Christ, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. And he goes on and asks another question we'll answer tonight. He, to understand the text and to get the full impact of what he's saying, don't continue in sin. Let me do it this way. Let me dissect it by looking at the verbs. And you just follow along and look at, there's three verbs that are repeated in this text that'll give us a flow. They start with this one, you know, understanding these impacting terms. No. You have to know something. The idea here that he says, knowing this, knowing this, or in, in, verse, in verse 6, 3 and 9, where he commands or he assumes you're knowing, it's the idea that you are remembering, that you are thinking on this, that you are, you are keeping this in mind. And what he does is he is implying there are several truths that are very important. When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to say, oh, I can go out and I can lose my temper and it's not a big deal because I know that God will forgive me again. I can go out and cheat on a test. I'll plan on doing it and it'll be okay because then I can just run to God anywhere. So I plan on sinning and, and taking advantage of grace. Know this. Remember this when you're tempted to do that. And so what he does is he gives us several spiritual truths that I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to rephrase some of these verses, taking tidbits from them. Know this. Keep in mind this, that sin is a terrible problem for all of us. Keep in mind that sin is a terrible problem for all of us. He says, shall we continue in sin? This isn't a problem for somebody else. This is your problem. This is my problem. He's, this problem of sin that we struggle with produces death, separation. This problem that we have is, with sin is that sin binds us. It can dominate us. He talks about being freed from sin. This sin seeks, he says in verse 14 that we read, don't be ha let sin have dominion over you anymore. So sin is something that's really terrible, that, is, that can produce death, it can terrible consequences, and it seeks to control you and me in our personal lives. And so he says, remember how bad it is. Keep it in mind. Keep in mind how bad it is. You know, we're not tempted by something that we look at as being evil, something that we look at that we don't like. I am not tempted to overeat when something is covered with coconut. Okay? It has, it, it, I, I don't like it. I am not tempted to overeat at breakfast if scrapple is put on the plate. Some of you, which I don't understand your point, I don't understand how you wouldn't overeat liver and onions. Okay? <laughs> See, the way we are, we have certain appetites. There's certain things. And if we think something is disgusting, we have no appetite for it. Remember, think, view sin as I would view coconut. Something disgusting, whatever that may be. You're cheating on a test. It's coconut. You're losing your temper. It's scrapple. Or for some of you, it's liver and onions or whatever you don't like. Look at it that way. That is, there, is a, there is a school. I told you about this about a year ago. 
Some of you might remember. There was a school that was having a problem, middle school, that the girls were going in, learning how to just use makeup. A lot of them would go in, put the lipstick on, and kiss the mirrors. And they were putting lipstick and kisses all over the mirrors, which was creating a lot of work and a lot of, you know, you know just not a cool thing to do. So the principal gave the rule to the, all the girls saying, stop, 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 didn't stop. So she got all that class together, which happened to be the sixth graders in that school, that they were the ones that it kept on showing up in their free time, that they could use the restroom. And so she gathered them all together in that restroom. She's saying, please, look at this mirror. Look how awful these mirrors look. Stop kissing the mirrors. Yeah, this is odd. This is disgusting. And they kind of snickered, and they were like, you know, not. So she had the janitor there, and they had prearranged this. She said, well, let me show you how terrible and how much work this is. Mr. Janitor, why don't you show them how hard it is to clean the mirror so they get the idea. So he took the brush, walked over, excuse me, girls, plunged the brush in the toilet, went back, and started washing the mirrors. They never had a problem with lipstick on the mirrors after that. You and I need to see that that temptation is disgusting. But we don't. We don't. We say, oh, cheating isn't that bad. But it is. It is. Let me give you something else to remember. Keep in mind that sin's power over you has been severed. That's what this text is talking about. Knowing this, knowing this, knowing this. Knowing. He says, keep in mind, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? We're dead. We don't have to make ourselves dead to sin. We already are. It is something that God has said. We're dead to it anymore. It doesn't have power over us. It doesn't have dominion. Remember, the old man was crucified. Your body of sin destroyed. That Again, that's not something we have to do. I have to say, oh, destroy sin. Oh, destroy. It, God did this in us. The power of sin has been rendered, destroyed means rendered powerless. It's like you're, you're, you're gauging your car. E on car means not enough. It means what? It's empty. And so you want to keep an eye. He says, your, the power of sin in your life has been moved. The needle has been moved down to empty. It no longer has to control you. You no longer have to do it. You can say no. You have the power. Remember this. Sin is disgusting. Remember this, it doesn't have to control. You don't have to give in to it. And so he says, remember this. You don't have to serve it anymore. The bondage has been, has been broken. Let, let's go to, oh, I know, I forgot I was going to tell you this story. A preacher, to demonstrate this to his congregation in his sermon that I was reading, he, he gave a, a, a clever way of putting it. He says, okay, let's pretend you're living in the era of pirates. And there you are, you're a merchant money, and you've been captured. And so you've been taken on the pirate ship and they want you, instead of you know, walking off the deep end, they want you to be in their crew. And they, so they make you a slave on that pirate ship. You're serving them. You have to do whatever the captain says. You have to wash and you know, the, scrub the deck. You have to put the sails up. You have to do the cooking. You do whatever menial task and awful task he may give you. You're his servant. You're his slave. And all of a sudden, one day, here comes the American Navy over the horizon. They get into a battle, and the pirates are defeated. They are all captured. You are freed by the American Navy. You're excited. You're, you're thrilled. You go on to the Navy ship, and on that same Navy ship is the captain who is the, your former master, your slave master. The captain, the pirate captain is there. And from his shackles, he yells to you, you got to do this for me. you got to do that. You don't listen to him anymore. He's no longer your master. 
You've been freed. You don't have to do what he says. You ignore him. That's the same as temptation for you who are born again. That you don't have to continue in the besetting sin of greed or lust or anger or the besetting sin of gossip or lying. You don't have to give in anymore. The power has been broken. Remember this. Remember that you have a real union and connection with Jesus Christ. You have something that, that is just pictured in Scripture. It is unique. It is phenomenal. It is spiritual. Look at how many times in this text he brings up the idea that you are, you are yoked to Jesus Christ. He talks about you have been immersed into, placed in, like immersed into water. You've been immersed into Jesus Christ. You're surrounded by him. You've been buried with him by baptism. You have raised, been raised up like as Christ was raised up. You have been planted together with him. You have been, been declared dead with Christ, dead to the old things, dead to sin. You are living with Christ. And he says, this, this is something that's true of all you believers. As many as have believed in him, they have been baptized into Christ, Galatians talks about. It's something that's happened to every one of you. You've been united to Christ. You've been yoked up with Christ. You've been put together. This is a real a real spiritual union of you and Christ together, which you pictured when you got baptized. Those of you who follow biblical baptism and you said, I'm going to declare that I and Christ are united, that I have died to my old life and I have raised a newness of life. This is what he's done for me. This is how he and I are yoked together. What he did on the cross, it has helped me as well to die to sin and raise a newness. And so you have a unique union with Jesus Christ. So you're tempted to go back to the old thing. You're tempted to become lazy again once at work. You're tempted to cheat at school. You have to remind yourself, this is something that is like toilet water on a mirror. This is disgusting. This is bad. This is something I don't have to do anymore. This does not have to control me. I don't have to listen to this anymore. Jesus Christ and I have a unique union. And this union that I have with Christ means whatever I do, I'm taking Jesus in with me. That where I go, Jesus goes with me. What I do, I'm involving Jesus Christ. Where he even talks about even people in, a, in an adulterous situation. They're involving Christ with it. How I treat other people, they have so much of a union with Christ. What I do to those other believers is what I do to Christ. So if I'm going to cheat, if I'm going to get involved with lying again, I'm taking Jesus right in with me and putting him right in the fray. I'm dragging the name of Christ down with me. I don't have to do that. I ought not to do that. Shall we continue in sin because grace abounds? God forbid. Just because I've been forgiven in the past doesn't mean that gives me license to drag Jesus and his name into the mud of tomorrow. Let me give you another, another truth that we would uh, throw along with this. We said that sin is is terrible. We've said that the power of sin is broken. You have a union with Christ. Keep in mind that we believers have been spiritually transformed. Because of the union with Christ, we have a new cause, a new level of where we go spiritually. He talks about, look at verse 4, where he says, buried with him by baptism into death, like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk. We've been transformed from death to life. 
from being buried, being surrounded by sin, to the point that we're walking in a newness of life. Since we have been dead with Christ, we believe we shall live with him. And just like Christ died to sin, once and for all we should die. All because of that same power that raised Christ. That's what he means by raised up by the glory of the Father. The power of Christ... That in Christ that brought him back and conquered sin in his life and the penalty is the same power that is within you. That spiritual power to resist evil is within you. That spiritual power to have, have said no to the past and no, I'm not going to be dominated and that, that bondage, that's within you who are born again. So let's add another truth. Keep in mind that because of your union with Christ, you don't have to sin anymore. It's somewhat redundant, but I want to just make sure you get this. You don't have to sin. You don't have to continue. You should walk in newness of life. Because you are united with Christ, we shall live with him. Just as Christ from the dead, that he died, he lives. We can and should and are able to do the same thing. We are able to resist temptation. Even if it is something, and by the way where it says, shall we sin that grace may abound, the idea is habitually. The idea of is being dominated by a sin that is your besetting sin. And so the idea is, you and I, because we're with Christ, the power of Christ within us, we don't have to be dominated by an addiction. We don't have to be dominated by an attitude. We don't have to be dominated. Oh, but I'm a redhead, so I get angry quick. That, that's foolish. That's foolish. The Word of God says that you don't have to sin anymore if you're born again. You don't have to. You don't have to give in. It, 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 we'll add this last. Keep in mind that via your water baptism, you declared that you were going to die to sin. You declared that you would live as Christ out of sin. Keep in mind you made that promise. Now, in this text, this is talking about a spiritual baptism, but the physical baptism pictured all that. Your death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. You made a public commitment, I am not going to live in, a, in some continuous sin anymore. I am not going to be dominated by, by an addiction. I am not going to be dominated by an attitude that, uh, of lack of forgiveness or bitterness I've had towards somebody. I'm not going to be uh, dominated by some appetite or emotion anymore. I'm going to be dominated by Jesus Christ. That's what she said. So keep in mind your vow that you made to God. So he says, know all this. Know all. But then he moves from know to another verb. He moves to reckon. Now, you and I, we, we say, okay, I know what reckon means. I reckon we ought to wrap up pretty soon. Okay, that's not what reckon means. Not in this text. In this text, reckon means this idea is not I guess, or I think, or maybe. It has apply what you know. Okay, it's the idea of, it's, a, it's an accounting term. It's of making the deposit account into your account, making it a reality. You know what he's telling me? He's telling me that knowing things is good. But what good does it do just to know things if you don't apply them to your life? We learn so as to live. Okay, We have doctrine so that it becomes our duty. Our beliefs are to show up in our behaviors. Ignorance, that we, if we don't know or don't, don't realize, it will re lead to spiritual impotence. So we know knowing is important, but what good is knowing if there is no going with it? 
if you're not doing it. So reckon. Reckon is basically saying, I am going to think to myself, sin is horrible. I don't have to do it anymore. I don't want to take Christ into this. I have the power to say no. I already made a commitment publicly that I wouldn't do this. Now apply it. Say no to the gossip. Say no to the temptation. Say no to the cheating. Reckon. Okay, apply it to your life. Make sure that you do this on a continual basis. Then what he does is he goes to a third verb that shows up several times in the chapter. The third verb, got no, we got reckon, then we got yield or obey. And that shows up several, multiple times. The word literally, that shows up from five times, the word is this word. It is the word to offer as a sacrifice. It's the same word that we read in Romans 12. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is, dedicate this. Make it, make it happen. Okay? You determine, and now, you know, this is what you know, your mind. This is your will, your reckoning. Now your actual doing is, I'm yielding. I'm yielding not to sin, but rather I'm letting a new master take over. I'm going to yield to Jesus Christ. He says, do not keep on letting sin reign in your body, but rather keep on obeying, or he says that you don't keep on obeying its lust. Do not constantly yield your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but he's going to say, yield them as instruments to righteousness, that principle of replacement. And he, and he uses a phrase, you read it in your, in your Bible. Once for all, yield yourselves. Once for all, yield yourselves, like Christ did. Once for all, die to sin, live unto God. Once for all. What's that mean, once for all? Does that idea, once for all, does it mean that if I do this one time, I'll never struggle with sin and temptation again? No. No, that's not what it means in this context. That, that's, not, that's not there. Does it mean that if you did say, okay, I got baptized, but even afterwards, um, you know, and I said I'm going to die to sin, but even afterwards I lost my temper once again, does it mean that you really didn't mean it when you got baptized, that you, it was all foolhardy? No, no, doesn't mean that. What it means, this once for all, think and cogitate on this. Determine right now that once and for all, once and for all, I'm going to put off, let, let's say whatever it is, okay? Let, let's pick some. I'm going to put off losing my temper. I lose my temper with the kids. I lose my temper with the employer. I lose my temper with the government. Well, that one, whew. okay. Um, I lose my temper with you know, other drivers. I lose my temper with the weathermen. They don't get it right. Um, you know, and so you get really angry and you, you explode and respond in a wrong way. I'm going to determine I'm never going to do that again. Are there good chances you'll be tempted again? Yeah, that, that's not what he says once for all. What he is saying is, once for all, I'm determining I'm not going to do it again. Not, well, I'm not going to do it now, but tomorrow I'm going to let my boss have it. So uh, I'm determining I'm, I'm going to keep in control under the Spirit of God all the time, I'm not going to plan on letting some sin in my life there or there or there. I can lose my temper at that driver. When I go to the store and they give me the wrong change, then it's okay to lose my temper. No, once for all. Once for all. I'm going to cover everything. I'm not planning on just a temporary commitment to God. I'm planning on how long to be committed. 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not planning on losing my temper at any time. That's what I'm saying, once for all. It's the idea of determining that you're going to change. Now, might you still lose your temper down the road? Yes, but you're not planning it. You're not, you're not prepared. You're not saying, well, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to lose my temper. But if that person at work says that again, you know, I'm going to let them have it, and then I can just go run to Jesus, and he'll forgive me anyway. No, we're determining we're going to live righteously. I'm not going to lose my temper with my kids. I'm just not going to do it. That's my intent. That's my once for all. And it'll probably happen again. My intent, my once for all. I am never, ever, ever going to look at forbidden stuff. Not just right now, but I'm not planning it. I'm planning getting out of my life. I'm not planning to go back to that addiction ever, ever, ever. That's once for all. Could I be tempted with it? Yeah, but I'm not planning it. I'm not intending that. I'm not putting a caveat that says, but, I'm, but I'll plan next week when I get together with the buddies and we'll do it. And so he's saying to them, yield, and by the way, he makes it very clear, yield your body parts. Why does he bring our bodies in? Well, that's where we're tempted, in body parts, okay? In our minds and in our hearts and in our responses. Yeah, and he says, rather be transformed and let your members become instruments, weapons to fight the battle to have victory in these areas. And so God is this text. It's really clear. God wants your mind, your remembrance. God wants your will, your reckoning. God wants your, your total of your body, that, that, he's, that you're, you're doing it. God wants all of you. Love the Lord thy God with your heart, the soul, the mind, the strength, every part of you. And in all fashion, reject all manner of sin and yield yourself to God. So yield, the idea is, I'm going to stop, but I'm going to do something righteous instead. I'm going to replace it. And so shall we continue in sin? Oh, God forbid, he says. Are you crazy? I never said that. I never said go out and sin some more. Hopefully you're as adamant as Paul. Hopefully you're as determined as Paul. So much so that this week you're going to say no to these things. These things that might haunt you, that might be a battle for you, the, the curse words, the porn, the fits of anger, the lousy attitude towards authorities over you, the, the lying, the greediness, the laziness that God would condemn, the anger that you maintain and hold against some family member or, or friend, the, the fact that you, your parents have rules and regulations, that you say, I- I'm going to obey them. Uh, that you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful how I respond. I'm going to pay my bills. I- I- I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not married and we're, j- we're, we're dating. We're, we're going to stay away from premarital sex. We're going to say no to judging others, to using the drugs. Okay? We're, we're, we're going to say no to cheating our employer by not giving an honest day's work. We're, we're going we're gonna to work on a marriage instead of just saying, no, that's it. I'm just going to be bitter and angry towards him or her. I, as a dad, I'm going to work at not provoking my kids. I'm going to work at my attitude, not being so hypercritical of other people. I'm going to work that I don't say things out of turn. I'm going to work that I keep my mind under control. This is where Paul is adamant in the practical outworking of not giving in to sin. Would you be as, as adamant? Would you remember this week? 
that you are associated with Jesus Christ wherever you do, wherever you go? Would you remember that Christ has shown you grace in the past and you should be grateful and in response to that, not go out and sin anymore, but knowing the pain it caused him, you would say no to sin. Because you know that sin is dangerous. You know that it's going to hurt your, your testimony. You publicly declared. You should have if you're a believer. It's the first thing that believers do in the New Testament. By your baptism, publicly declare you're following Christ. And so you're going to say no. No, no. And not presume upon God anymore by saying, well, it's okay. It's okay. I can go to church and be holy today. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's okay because, because then I can just ask for forgiveness again. You're presuming and abusing the grace of God that God never intended. God never intended to forgive you so you can forget him until he comes around for forgiveness. And then you forget about him again, and then it comes around you want to be forgiven. That is not a biblical lifestyle. That is not what Scripture calls us to do. Scripture calls us who are forgiven to a higher plane, that we follow through with what we have promised. That we would say to him, I'm going to put off the old man and put on the new. And then we'd follow through with the promises that we made. The preacher goes and visits a man in the hospital. A wealthy man, member of the church. But the guy has been pretty known as being pretty, pretty uh, cheap and tight. So he's seeing this man who is really, really ill. And the man says, oh, preacher, pray that God would heal me of this. And pull me through this, this horrible illness. If he does, I promise I'll give a million dollars to the church. And preacher prays. Man recovers. A few months later, preacher's walking down the street and he sees the stranger of a man who's not showing to darken the door of the church for the last several months. He says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm feeling great. So the preacher thought he was just kind of, you know, bring it up. He says, hey, remember when you were in the hospital, you made that promise to God? That promise that if God healed you, you'd give a million dollars to the church? Oh, I didn't say that. Yeah, you did. There was nurses and doctors standing there by. They were very impressed. You made that promise. Well, preacher, all that goes to show you is how delirious I was when I was sick. <laughs> how delirious are you when it comes to making a commitment like when we finish a sermon like this? And we sing songs where we say, I surrender all. Is it just, is it just your thought to just follow the crowd? Is it just to get by for the moment? Or is it intent from your heart that this is what I really mean? Once for all at this moment, I really mean that I am not going to continue in sin that grace may abound. I'm going to live for the Lord. We sing this song, and it's a beautiful song. It's a song about commitment. We're just doing two stanzas. But I want you to listen and, and follow the words closely as you sing them. And think about what you're singing. How you're even talking about your body, your soul, your commitment of your whole being. And is this true of your life? Well, let's, let's see if we mean it.